we welcome AuthorHub and the dynamic duo of uh, Mr. Kash Akhtar and Mr. Peter Bates that need little introduction. The platform is all about providing high quality of interactive orthopedic education for all through their educational videos and their C1 Do One podcast that's nearing cult status. We'll now be treated to a live podcast session with Professor John Keating, who is a legend of UK orthopedics, and welcome you all to the stage. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Morning. If anyone has ever seen or heard one of our podcasts, you'll know it's traditional for us to have a clacker at the beginning. So if you don't mind just clapping your hands together for us. Uh, thank you. I, I told you we'd get one clap today. So we're off. How about, hello and welcome to our first ever live edition of the Author Hub Stories podcast, which is a thing we've not done before. We're here in sunny Edinburgh, when in Rome. And whilst we're a long way from our manor in East London, we're delighted to be here. We, we're always very grateful to Bota for the support they've shown Author Hub. And so we're kind of privileged to be invited to join you fine folks once again. In return for your support, I've bought you some eye candy in the form of Mr. Peter Bates. <laughs> what a specimen. And I just want to say, who's responsible for the Congress program, by the way? Who was it? Who set up the... the is it Arham or is it you? Is it Arham? No, I, 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 it crapped me up. I think it's just genius. They're putting spine last on the Friday afternoon. You know, everyone's, fran everyone's frantically on their phones trying to bring their trains forward. Um, but Pete, what are we talking about today? Uh, well, I don't use this term lightly, but uh, we're interviewing a genuine legend of orthopedic trauma and orthopedics. He just lives 10 minutes up the road, so that's how we managed to get him here. Uh, but uh, he That's is, not the only reason he's that's here. That's not the only reason. <laughs> but he is, he is just at the, been at the absolute forefront of orthopedics and uh, of, of trauma and knee surgery for decades. He's faculty on the local uh, but world-renowned world uh, Edinburgh Trauma Symposium. He is... He's faculty on every course you could imagine. He is uh, editor for JOT, for JBJS. And, and one of the most telling things, if, if you like, before I had this, 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 uh, this podcast, we, I, I kind of phoned a couple of the guys in Edinburgh. I said, tell me about John. Well, what, what do you know about John? What should I ask him? What's, what would be a fun, interesting question? And they all said the same thing. They all said, well, if John was run over by a bus tomorrow, it would take four people to replace him. He has an incredible energy he does operations, he does a lot of operating, and even at this stage, he is still uh, outperforming, out out-operating a lot of his younger colleagues. He is, um, he's an, a genuine surgical energy. So uh, tell us a bit more, Cash. Yeah, so this is an Orthub story special. In the stories, we kind of explore the life stories and journeys of kind of truly remarkable people. So we're joined today by, as Pete says, a true legend of British orthopedics, someone who's done phenomenal work to move the needle a veritable trailblazer, but enough about Pete Bates, because uh, John Keating's here as well. We don't want him to feel left out. Um, oh. Professor John Keating is an extremely elusive man. There's very little online about him that only leads me to deduce that he has a shady past and he's got much to hide. <laughs> what I do know is that he's not the John Keating who's exposed by the Daily Mail as having done botched surgeries on 70 stray animals. That is an orthopedic surgeon in Georgia as well, but that's not this John Keating. The photos don't match. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for that very lengthy introduction. That's a very polite way of saying that I'm mad and very old. 
But, uh, you know, um, one thing I would say is that, so all I can find is that John Keating was trained in Dublin, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Vancouver, was appointed to the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh as a consultant orthopedic surgeon almost 30 years ago in 1994. Just out of interest, um, just to make some of us feel very old, um, look away, Miss Eastwood. Um, raise your hands if you were born in 1994 or after in this room. Jeez. So that's more than half the room. Okay. <laughs> Now we know the audience. Um, John was president of the Orthopaedic Trauma Society in 2016, uh, honorary professor at Edinburgh University where he does clinical and basic research uh, related to trauma and knees, does a lot of editing, as Pete says. And just to set the scene, as well, in addition to those quotes from Pete, uh, other quotes are, John is a hardcore trauma surgeon. These are from people who know him well. Nothing will make him sweat. Uh, mind you, they did say that about Prince Andrew too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's, he's more academic than most full-time university appointments. Uh, if I was building a unit, who'd be number one on the team sheet? Um, the, exactly as Pete said. Someone else said, God knows what we'll do when he retires. We'll have to appoint three or four people to replace him. And the last one was, he speaks his truth, uh, which we may come back to if we have time. <laughs> Pete, do you want to kick us off? John, uh, start us away. Uh, tell us about where you started and, and, and how you come to work in Scotland. So basically, I started my career out in Dublin. I was appointed in 1983 in those days as a house officer to Dr. Stevens Hospital in Dublin, which is where I started and got bitten by the orthopedic bug. But the uh, interesting thing about uh, Dr. Stevens Hospital at that time was um, its main claim to fame was it was actually where Abraham Collis was appointed in 1799 and subsequently described the Collis fracture 15 years later in a paper that was published in the uh, Journal of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, actually, in 1814. So it took longer to write up papers in those days, I guess. But um, <laughs> the thing was that I would say, well, the striking thing about um, trauma orthopedics at that time was that if uh, Abraham Collis had turned up, uh, like I did, to be a house officer in 1983 at Dr. Stevens Hospital, the only thing that was greatly different was the fact that we had electricity. Um, because uh, pretty much everything else was the same in terms of what we were doing with orthopedic trauma at the time. We were really operating on very little stuff, so Abraham Collis would have fitted in pretty well. John, can I just ask you, you're, you're rocking me to my core here. It's Collis, not Collies. Um, yeah, that, John's right. It's Collis. Yeah. Collis. Yeah. It's Collis. And we've all been wrong all these years. <laughs> um, and John, listen, um, tell us about your fellowship training. Where was it? So I, I, I trained in um, Dublin for five years, and I realized that you needed to get a little bit of research under your belt if you were to have any chance in those days of getting what was uh, your passage to consultancy, which was the senior registrar job. So I um, had an opportunity to go and work in Glasgow to begin with, and I worked for David Hamlin over there, who was the professor at the time, and he was quite clear when I turned up there in 1988. He said, this job is for one year and one year only, and you will have to go back to Ireland after that. So 35 years later, <laughs> I'm still here. So um, then I got the opportunity to work in Edinburgh as a senior registrar and then completed my training by spending a year in uh, Vancouver as a trauma fellow. Doing trauma. Now listen, as impressive a career as you've had, there's something clearly missing. There's a glaring deficiency. Why did you never work in London? Well, I did. Oh, you I did? did work in London. Oh, right. Tell Very us. Very briefly, I... Um, after I finished my house officer year, I uh, was taken on as an anatomy demonstrator in a short period of time, so I went to London to do a locum in Thomas's. Right. I actually worked for a chap called Norman Browse. He was Norman Browse at the time. He subsequently was Professor Sir Norman Browse, but he was a very nice guy. 
so I did work for a short period of time in London. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, I, I see you in a whole different light now. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I, it was amazing because I, um, I arrived to, to Thomas's Hospital in London and... Um, you know, we're fond of a drink in Ireland, but uh, we didn't drink in the hospitals at the time. But to my delight, uh, when I arrived in Thomas's Hospital in London at that time, there were no less than two bars actually on the campus. <laughs> and uh, there was even in the residence at the time, there was even a small bar. So the, there were three places uh, on the premises where you could acquire alcohol. And I remember that first evening sitting there thinking, well, I'm on call, so... I'm not going to be drinking. This chap comes in in a white coat with pages and pulls himself a pint of uh, lager. And he says, uh, do you fancy a pint? I said, I can't. I'm on call. He said, well, so am I. <laughs> he says, he says you, you, you uh, just put your name down in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so a slightly liberal approach, which was yeah. welcome at the time. Uh, an honour system is what yeah. we call it. Um, and listen, um, is it true? So you came back, you were appointed in Edinburgh in 1994. Is it true that you were appointed as a hand surgeon? Yes, I had a slightly um, odd sort of situation at the time. I was told that I, I, I think to get the job advertised, they thought they needed another hand surgeon. So it was a hand and trauma post. But uh, I quickly metamorphosed into a pelvic and acetabular surgeon. Within yeah. the first. Um, and, and those kind of changes were quite common in that era. You know, yeah. you'd appoint somebody to do arthroplasty and they'd decide that they want to do shoulder surgery or spine surgery. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty easy. You just were appointed. You, you, you got your feet under the table and you started doing what you fancied. Yeah. Did you, did you do any hand surgery at that time? Uh, as little as humanly possible. I was never that keen on it, so yeah. That's a good way to be. Mm -hmm. Edinburgh is quite a unique place, isn't it, in, in terms of hospitals, in terms of the research infrastructure. Uh, so many of the publications that come out of there are down to this database you guys keep and the, the follow-up you have of your patients. How did that develop? How did that come about? Was that already set up when you arrived or was that something you were part of, of setting up? Well, it, 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 it was starting to evolve at the time because at that time in orthopaedics, basically, um, although trauma orthopaedics represents about 50% um, of the actual operative workload, very few people in the UK at that time were interested in it as a subspecialty. And, I mean, effectively, it didn't exist. And uh, starting out uh, in one of my first orthopaedic jobs in Dublin, I remember we arrived in uh, the sick children's hospital in Crumlin, and uh, my boss, who was pretty senior at the time, Brian Regan, sat myself and my fellow senior registrar down, and he said, my trauma is your trauma. <laughs> and that was an instruction. Uh, basically, the boss was not to be disturbed. And my second orthopaedic job, my senior registrar, Tom, Tom Burke, said to me, he says, now, Johnny says, you come to work in the matter hospital. He says, now, the key thing is, the last six months, we haven't called the boss once, and that's got to continue. So he said, that is your goal. He says, we don't want to disturb these guys. And they were guys in those days, mostly. Um, so, but when I got to Edinburgh, it was really quite striking, because at that time, uh, there were three surgeons who were taking an interest in orthopedic trauma, James Christie, Charles Corbran, and Margaret McQueen. And um, they had established, to some extent, with quite a large uh, amount of difficulty, um, the trauma unit. And uh, they, it was a fair bit of negotiation um, getting the elective surgeons off call. Now, the elective surgeons at the time were all really ensconced in the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital outside town doing elective work and had absolutely no interest in orthopaedic trauma whatsoever. But there was a certain amount of prestige that came with uh, being... Um, labelled as being on call at uh, the Royal Infirmary for Trauma. So part of the deal that Charles negotiated was that at that time, the names of all these surgeons, who shall remain nameless, were stuck on outside on the ward. And the deal was that... So they're not nameless. We can so, see them. Look yeah. them up. So basically... basically you can go find them. 
they, they insisted on their names being left on the wards outside as if they were still there, even though they were long gone. So, but I mean, it was a bit of an uphill struggle. And there was a lot of antipathy between the two units at the time, which is gone now, I'm glad to say. But uh, it, it was a certain amount of difficulty getting the show on the road. That yep. would have made more work for the rest of you guys, taking these guys off the on-call rater. More yeah, so basically, uh, um, these people who were not interested in trauma and didn't come in on call and weren't interested in being called and being involved in the care of these patients... Uh, were eventually glad to be off call, and that meant that when I was appointed first, I was on a one and four. So it was just, you know, we were known as the gang of four uh, locally. But uh, so it was, it was relatively busy. Yeah. And you, you spoke earlier. You were implying that back in the when you started, very little actual orthopedic trauma surgery took place. Well, it was quite amazing because in uh, when, in, in that first job in Stevens Hospital, and it was the same when I got to Glasgow. Basically. We operated on forearm fractures because we used to plate them. Uh, in the lower limb, we did operate on hip fractures, uh, but there was only two uh, options for them. You had an Austin Moore hemiarthroplasty. So Austin Moore, some of you will have seen pictures of it. It was um, based on a doorknob, but didn't work quite as well. <laughs> and uh, the only show in town for uh, all the other hip fractures was a sliding hip screw device, and, yeah. that, and that was it. And then all femur fractures were all managed in traction. So that meant, and they were mostly crazy young men in those days who did the kind of things that ended up bre- breaking femurs, but those people were all facing two to three months in the hospital on traction, and it was a real pain managing those cases because apart from the fact that, well, it was quite a pain for the, for the patients, obviously, but for us, we were constantly taking x-rays, constantly fiddling around with traction, and it was really super labor-intensive. Um, and uh, we operate on the odd ankle fracture, and that was it. We never operated on uh, calcaneal fracture. All the pelvic fractures were managed non-operatively with the occasional external fixator. So <clears throat> that was in 1983. I was appointed just over 10 years later, and no fracture was safe at that stage. We were operating <laughs> on absolutely everything. So it was <clears throat> That was the explosion of the AO, wasn't it? Where, where suddenly we had all these, uh, people had all these implants to play with. Uh, nails were coming out, uh, compression well, plates. Na- nails made one of the biggest differences because the interlocking intramedullary nail, you suddenly went from this situation where all the orthopedic wards, or a lot of them, were absolutely full of young people on traction for months on end to those patients suddenly coming into the hospital hospital and being out within a matter of days. It was really quite extraordinary. And the other thing about the, inter- the interlocking nails for femur and the tibia, you know, uh, tremendous operation and, you know, almost foolproof, except for the fact that fools are so ingenious. Um, <laughs> and finding ways to, to foul up operations that are pretty much perfect otherwise. But uh, yeah, so that, that was an extraordinary uh, thing. And the, and the other thing that we did at the time uh, that was kind of revolutionary here was we started nailing open fractures and that was considered completely off the wall crazy thing to actually do it's totally obviously standard of care now but at the time and it was really down to, to largely to charles court brown who uh was was mad enough to do it basically yeah. <laughs> and uh it it it, t- it took off but it was hugely controversial at the time so and we ran into a lot of flack at various meetings for doing something that was perceived to be completely crazy and now it's kind of gone full circle almost. Well, you know, um, we, we were operating on every single thing, and now we've got people like Matt Costa running trials telling us that we shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. But, you know, 
Um, but I, I can remember in those days, uh, before we started doing all this stuff, that we had a lot of pretty miserable patients in fracture clinics. So um, it's all very well uh, saying that we shouldn't be operating them because a fuzzy thing like the EQ5D at four months says that, that there isn't a big difference. I can tell you that there is a massive difference. Uh, were you operating at night? Was there a lot of nighttime operating, like people going at four in the morning and stuff? Or not yeah, really? well, it was completely crazy because at that time, you know, if 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 you had an open fracture, it absolutely had to be done. So, you know, I'd find myself on call of a weekend, and it might be ten o'clock on a Sunday night. I get a phone call from whoever was on call with me down at the Royal saying, "We've got this woman in. She's got an electron <laughs> fracture, but it's open." And ah, oh, heart sink. So. <laughs> All right, set it up, and you find yourself going into the hospital at 12 o'clock at night to start an electron fracture in some 70-year-old woman with a wound that was about a that tiny size. puncture so wound. A type 1 open. And uh, so we had this kind of dogma that was completely crazy. So that, so that has gone out the window, obviously. So that's a big difference. And also, um, I was around for, the, well, in the 90s when we had this early total care philosophy, which you can probably remember, Pete, right? So that was completely, you know, you got a multiply injured patient in and you had to fix absolutely everything, early total care. So, you know, you'd start at midnight and work your way through and keep going. And about sort of uh, two o'clock the following afternoon, you'd leave the SHO to wire the last fifth <laughs> metacarpal fracture. <laughs> Um, so we don't do that anymore because it yeah. d- doesn't do the patient a whole lot of good a lot of the time. But yeah. We did a podcast with um, Heather Valier and she talked about the early total care and how that kind of has changed. Um, one thing that's interesting is that the Edinburgh Trauma Unit, Edinburgh Trauma, has developed a huge reputation. It really went from, you know, you saying the point where people weren't in great deal of operating to being one of the most famous trauma units in the country. You have the trauma symposium. How did that go about? How do you make that transition from a gang of four who just want to f- f- do the best thing they can, to all of a sudden becoming a part of a huge you know, internationally renowned unit? Well, even at that stage, I think um, the, 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 the key thing that we were doing was we were, uh, we were taking an interest in trauma, obviously, and we're trying to do it well, but we were actually, um, from the word go, r- writing about it, and um, that... And that um, generated obviously an academic reputation and so one thing leads to another um you've got people then wanting to come and work and 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 wanting to work in the unit and and, uh, trainees coming through who were now working in a unit where there was a cohort of really interested committed trauma surgeons who were interested and so it's a much it was a much more pleasurable experience for the trainees because now they're working with people who are coming in supervising them and a certain amount of leadership, and so uh, you know, it um, generated the momentum to gradually make the case for appointing more people. And uh, you know, now there's, I guess, twelve of us in the unit. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's great. And the trauma symposiums really helped with that as well, hasn't it? As uh, yeah, again, I mean, that's largely down, I think, to Charles Court Brown, uh, James Christie, and Margaret McQueen, who'd actually got that going just before I arrived in town, and so. Uh, that that was already there, but it was just really starting off. It had only been going for two or three years, I think, by the time I, I arrived. And that's um, again, it it, it uh, there was virtually no trauma meetings at that time in the UK, and um, so the trauma symposium was one of the only really good trauma meetings that were happening in the UK at the time. So it was a place that a lot of people came. I mean, obviously, there's lots and lots of meetings now that you guys run down in London and um, all over the country, there's various courses. But at that time, uh, that really wasn't the case. 
I came with Pete back in 2015, and if anyone's not been, I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. It's in the summer. It's wonderful. It's kind of around the fringe fringe time, isn't it? And it's a great place to be. Yeah, it's right in the thick of festival. Yeah, yeah no, it's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. John, listen, I'm ashamed to say I knew you as a trauma surgeon, probably because of your presence of the OTS. And it was only really more recently come to light that you're a proper surgeon too, and that you do knee surgery. <laughs> and then what I realized was one of, the, one of your colleagues said, he's not a man who looks for praise. And that's when I thought to myself, hold on, he must be a knee surgeon. Because <laughs> we all choose to shun the limelight, we just do the work, right? Oh man, this so is painful. How does that work for you? <laughs> well, you certainly won't be getting praise from your knee patients, but uh, I, yeah, I, I, was, um, I was appointed, and of course, you know, everybody had an elective practice at that time. But actually, one of the other things that was sort of done not particularly well was the acute knee was not managed uh, particularly well. So people... You know, there was loads of patients turning up to the emergency department with acute knees, and they were just dispersed around the fracture clinic. So I said I would um, take them on and uh, establish an, an, an acute knee clinic. So I, it, wasn't, it wasn't with the intention of having an elective practice. It was like an extension of my trauma practice. So I started this soft tissue acute knee clinic. And so um, really what happened then in the mid-90s after I was appointed in 94 was I... I mounted a, a solo campaign to eradicate the ACL deficient knee from the Lothian area. And so, a worthy goal. A worthy you, goal. Yeah, so uh, I, I suddenly started doing an extraordinarily large number of, of, of ACL deficient knees. But also um, I developed an, in, uh, an interest as a consequence in more complex multi-ligament knee injuries. Again, they were often managed not particularly well at the time, so... Uh, that just became part of uh, what I did. And so I, I, I did have quite a large, then consequently elective knee, knee practice uh, as a consequence of that. But establishing the knee clinic meant uh, that, 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 that was very helpful because at the time, most people did not have an ACL tear diagnosed at presentation. They were seen in the, in the emergency department and they were put at that time into what was known as a Robert Jones bandage. You may not remember that, but it was... Had about, you know, 90 layers of wool and crap. Yeah. And the patient was then sent off into the community, never to be seen again, and turned up five years later with a horribly unstable knee, usually having had menisectomies and all the rest of it. And so a, a bandage around their ankles. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was the background, a little bit of the background to my uh, uh, role as a knee surgeon. And, and knee surgeries um, has evolved in that time as has trauma surgery in recent years has been developing these new techniques meniscus root repair quads tendon acl and there's been a reinvention of a rediscovery of things like the modified lemaire for the lateral tenodesis for you how is it now at this stage of your career is it that you know what works in your hands and it's tried and tested or is it a constant evolution how do you view it at this stage well, I mean, in general, I've, I, I've seen things come and go over the course of my career, you know, and particularly where you get to soft tissue knees, certain things have, uh, you know, uh, been incredibly popular for relatively short periods of time, you know. So I've seen um, artificial ligaments come and go. They come every five years. So yeah. I've seen about four or five waves of them now. We're doing another one, aren't we? Uh, yeah, definitely, for sure. And, uh, Are we still doing double bundles? Hmm? We still doing double bundles? No, not for about five years now. That's gone. And it'll, 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 it'll be yeah. back. It'll be yeah. back, surely. And you know... Uh, We're doing double bundle PCLs now. Okay. Yeah. 
One of my colleagues came back from a soft tissue knee meeting and uh, he was always keen to adopt a new tech technique and he said, uh, they've got this great idea for PCL injuries now. You don't have to reconstruct them. You just, uh, because they're often in continuity, they're just stretched out. You can do uh, thermal shrinkage, you know, so you burn them and that restores the function. I thought, that just doesn't sound right. So, of course, predictably, you know, uh, we don't hear a lot about PCL thermal shrinkage uh, these, <laughs> these days. That, again... I think that lasted for about six or seven months, perhaps. But, uh, so, yeah. So I've seen a lot of things come and go. But um, I think if you've got a successful way of doing something, and so if, if, if you take, for example, the standard techniques of ACL reconstruction that have been around for a long time using middle third patellar tendon graft or quadruple hamstring grafts, these things work. And actually, they've got a success rate of 95 to 97%. And as a general observation over the course of my career, if you have an operation that has a success rate of 95 to 97%, it's very difficult to improve on it. Really, it is. So, you know... Um, I've tended to find if I have something that really works and works well, I tend not to change it very much. Yeah. 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 All the trainees in the room will have noticed um, in, in their bosses and the, the departments they're in how there tends to be a drift um, in the senior surgeons as people get more advanced in, the, in, their, in their practice. They tend to drift more towards their elective practice and away from trauma. Um, I, I think that's, that's generally across the piece. Um, and yet you've done quite the opposite. Actually, you've stayed totally engaged in trauma all the way through, despite having an, an active elective practice. Why is it, do you think, people move away from trauma? And is there anything we can do to, sort of, to, to prevent it? And what, what, what kept you in trauma? Well, I mean, I, I guess to some extent, um, over the course of time, it's, it's certainly evolved. It's, it's, it's easier now, I think, to remain actively involved in it because obviously early total care and operating all night has gone out. So that's made life a little bit easier. And on the whole, I would say now most people are on much more civilized on-call rotors. So the, uh, the, these onerous rotors that we were on in the past of one and threes and one and fours are, thank God, a thing of the past. So I think it's definitely something that you can stain, uh, sustain over a longer period of time. And um, I mean, it hasn't happened in, in, in my case, but I know it's certainly the situation around the country where people are able to remain actively involved in trauma but are not necessarily on call so they can still do trauma lists and um, so it's possible I think to extend your your career but I mean the reason I didn't uh, drift towards you know um, an exclusively elective practice or why I've remained interested in trauma is I like it and uh, you know it's it's it's, it's the, the, a huge amount of variety lots of challenges and it's it's really interesting and I kind of liked it from the word go Although, you know, when I started out my career and it wasn't really a big thing at the time to, um, to have an interest in trauma. And when I first arrived in Edinburgh, when I was in the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital and people were asking me, what did I want to do in the uh, longer term? I was saying trauma. The, the one word of advice that I got at that time was don't. <laughs> Um, so that, that, I'm so happy I ignored that piece of advice, but, uh, you know, because I've had a very fulfilling career doing it. It's been fantastic fun, but yeah. And, and I still rem uh, retain my enthusiasm for it. And um, I did briefly come off call in 2013 because they decided I was too old, you know, to st still be on call. But I actually missed it and asked to come back on call. Straight so, back in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so... Are there, any, are there any trauma operations that you don't do anymore, that you used to do and don't do anymore, or, or like procedures or things that like you, you kind of miss or you don't miss? Well, um, 
you know, uh, when I started out in life in Dr. Stevens Hospital, what we used to do for collar fractures, there were, there were three things. Manipulation, remanipulation when that didn't work, and then when it all went horribly wrong, a procedure called Darek's procedure. Darek's procedure was excision of the distal end of the ulna. And actually, it had many things to recommend, very quick to perform, technically quite straightforward, um, didn't need a lot of fancy equipment, um, no fancy imaging, and uh, it, consequently, it had a very low surgical morbidity, and its only salient drawback was it didn't work at all. <laughs> but other than that... <laughs> but but it, was wi- it was widely used at the time, and... Uh, uh, there was also a lot of operations, you know, um, in, 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 in my knee practice, uh, um, we, we did think it was possible to eradicate anterior knee pain, but uh, I've discovered that uh, operations for anterior knee pain in general, um, you know, not particularly successful, and uh, yep, so there was all these funny operations like the Mackay osteotomy and all the rest of it, and so it was frequently the case that people have about 10 different operations and then get a patelectomy, and, uh, and that didn't work either. So I've given That must have been mo- quite a brutal operation, a patelectomy. I've never seen one, but... Well, it's not particularly brutal, but it's just, just completely ineffective, largely yeah. speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that, it's fine. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I always say, uh, this when uh, people come to work with me, I say, you know, you know, the Ten Commandments of knee surgery are, thou shalt not operate on the patellofemoral joint. Repeat ten times. <laughs> and somebody once said, well, that's, well, that makes eleven. I said, well, that's because God added the eleventh command to emphasize how unwise it is to operate on the patellofemoral joint. Uh, it's funny you mention that. I, I saw a patient on Monday that I'd, had done that on, and I'm regretting it. And so I think I might start using Keating's Ten Commandments, yes. Eleven Commandments. Is there, um, in a similar vein to what P said, are there any operations that you absolutely hated doing and you're glad they don't exist anymore? I never enjoyed getting cement out of the femur in revisions. And I, when I first started, I was doing some revisions. That was pretty tedious. You know, I was very glad to uh, give that up. And actually, um, <clears throat> although I did fix a lot of calcaneal fractures when I first came back. I was quite pleased when my colleagues decided that they wanted to do them and would they mind if uh, they did some of my cases because, you know, I was yeah. never fond of calcaneal fractures because they were always, even, even when you get them right, the patients tend to be a bit miserable. Yeah. And uh, um, I'm sure you find the same with pelvic fractures too. I mean, they're yeah. fun to do, right? Yeah. But yeah. you get a lot of miserable patients. Yeah, in the a lot clinic. of unhappiness afterwards. Yeah. 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 I don't know how you live with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot, of, a, lot of the, a lot of the misery comes from either low back pain or actually urogenital symptoms, you know, like urinary problems, sexual dysfunction. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that makes people deeply unhappy, even though your x-ray looks obviously fabulous. Yeah, the x-rays look great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the most important outcome measure in orthopedic trauma. A good-looking post-operative x-ray. Nothing else counts. Speaking of uh, knee, anterior knee pain, I just because you come from a, a unit that's famous for, for, for pushing tibial nails for decades. Well, where are we with anterior knee pain and kneeling after tibial nailing? Are, are we, is suprapatellar nailing the, the, the new thing that's going to eradicate that or not? Uh, well, the jury's out on that, really, and we've just um, written a paper that's going to appear in the American Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery that says that there's not a whole lot of difference comparing the two. So I think that that's just, um, I mean, every operation that we do has got some sort of downsides to it, and I guess the downside of nailing tibias is you get a proportion of patients with 
usually not particularly disabling, but perhaps annoying knee pain that usually resolves when you take the nail out in those patients that actually have it. But, you know, um, compared to the situation before, because actually when I came here to Edinburgh, we weren't nailing tibias in Glasgow where I'd previously worked. And uh, when I got here, my very first fracture clinic where they had just started the tibial nailing, I got this patient into my first fracture clinic. He was eight weeks after nail. He was working as a mechanic. He's out of the hospital. He's back at work. He turned up into his, in, in his overalls and was heading back to work after the fracture clinic appointment. For me, it was like a road to Damascus conversion. Yeah. Because at that because, point, his tibia wasn't even healed. Correct. And yet he's back at work. Yeah. I mean, you just, it was just an extraordinary sort of thing that I hadn't seen anywhere else. It was just immediately apparent. And of course, um, it, it was pretty clear because actually at that time, we were just starting nailing here. And within a very short space of time, tibial nailing and femoral nailing, obviously, just became the standard of care wor worldwide for these injuries in developed countries anyway. Um, because it's so obvious. I mean, you just don't need trials to prove it's, it's better than anything else. Because if you have something that really works in medicine, it's automatically successful. You do not need randomized trials to prove it, all right? You know, as I said earlier um, when we were chatting, John Charlie introduced the first successful hip replacement in 1961. Ten years later, everybody in the Western Hemisphere was using it, because, and there were no trials. It was just so obviously better than anything else that was there before, you know. It was interesting what you were saying, because here we are 20 years later, still wondering what to do with cartilage lesions and Macy and, you know, all these things. Um, so you're right, something works, it works. Well, you know, uh, Macy was first introduced, his autologous chondrocyte transplantation operations were introduced in 1994, and we're still wondering if they worked. Well, 20 years later, if you're still wondering, does it work or not, the chances are that's well, telling you yeah. something, <laughs> yeah. i.e. it doesn't work particularly well. It's well, it's 30 yeah. now, yeah? It's probably shite. Yes. Yeah. But still better than pelvic and acetabular surgery. Well, we're st <laughs> that's arguable. Um, there was one... We got, we got five minutes. Let's talk about training. So, with your vast experience, I, I didn't want to ask this one question, Pete, but Pete wants me to ask a question. With uh, the greater respect, I think you're the first person I've met whose GMC number begins with a two. Um, <laughs> barely. It's two nine, to be fair. It's almost a... Th it's almost a two three. nine two eight six two three. See, I've got, I still have a few synapses left, and you know, I can remember. But... Um, Looking, looking back, is there one piece of advice you'd give the trainees in the room here? Well, um, I, I guess um, the first thing to do is I think if you decide you want to do something in the field of orthopedics, you should stick to your guns and do it because uh, if you really like something, then uh, it makes sense, I think, to, 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 to choose it. But interestingly enough, I think uh, when I was finishing my training... Um, they sent me to work with Michael McMaster, who was actually a scoliosis surgeon in the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital. And I thought to myself, well, it was only going to be for three months before I took up my post. And I didn't think I was going to learn very much from Michael McMaster. But actually, it was a fantastic way to finish because I did learn a lot from him. But one thing that I, 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 I learned that I really took away from his practice was being totally consistent. He did things the same way every single time and he had a, a very much a routine and it makes life so much easier 
If you go into theater and they know for a given operation or a given problem, what you do is that the way you position the patient, the way you do the operation, the sequence of events, doing it really, really consistently um, is makes life so much easier. People chopping and changing and, and deciding to use different prostheses all the time, they just make a rod for their own back. So I think being really consistent uh, is is very helpful uh, in a career in surgery in general, I would say, and, yeah. and that's important. How do you think ch- training has changed uh, since uh, back in the days? It w- did, did trainees get a better deal back, back 20, uh, 10, 20 years ago, or, or are they getting a better deal now, or is there a bit of both? Well, I, I think um, there are, are plus points for the way we were trained or, or, uh, or the way we trained people back in the 90s and there are plus points to the way people are trained now. I think overall probably the quality of training is probably is, is certainly better than when I was a trainee, which is, yeah. was you know along the lines of see one, do one, teach one sort of philosophy, which is not so popular now. But, uh, I, I, but I, I think the thing that's changed that's maybe not so good with modern training is I think we did get an awful lot of surgical experience, and that was a big advantage, if you like. Advantage is maybe a dubious term to describe, to, to describe a one-in-three on-call rotor, but there was no doubt that people did get a lot of surgical experience, and you built up experience and confidence very quickly. And uh, so that, that was a, 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 a big advantage of training at that time. What's much better now, I think, is the quality of supervision is so much better, and the amount of unsupervised operating is, has declined greatly, which is a good thing, obviously, most importantly for our patients. Uh, so I, that's probably the major change, just the level of supervision and the quality of teaching is so much better, I think. Is, is there, can, can things get a bit too supervised? Is, is, there, is there a happy medium there? Because, uh, uh, you know, particularly towards uh, high levels of, uh, of, of specialty training, actually it's nice to, to, to get the boss out of the room, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's important that that is incorporated as an element of the training. And we still have um, lists where tra- senior tra- trainees at the Royal are, are doing unsupervised operating. But, I mean, fortunately, um, there's always people in the, in the corridor, in the theatre ne- next door. So that, um, and if they need to send out an SOS, they can. I do think it is important, and I, I think it is a slight disadvantage of modern training that with the reduction of uh, training hours, the um, number of training operative opportunities has has declined. And I think it probably does mean, and I, and I have observed this, that when people are first appointed, they perhaps don't have the same level of confidence to take on stuff than we would have done by comparison 30 years ago. But the environment has changed because... There's, there's people around in most larger departments that you can mentor people and if, if younger colleagues have difficult cases, it's usually very easy these days to involve a senior colleague just until you get that level of, 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 of experience. Yeah, I guess it's unsupervised and then unsupported. They're different things, aren't Absolutely, they? Absolutely, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's interesting, it has been an evolution because I got appointed nine years ago. I came straight for fellowship, no local post, into my substantive post. And that first year was a, a hell of a steep learning curve without anyone around as such, you know, in the coffee room. And so I think what you're describing, there's been a transition over the years. But, you know, both are doing great work, we're being supported. You've got the TPD and the SACs coming deposes here and everyone you'll have some talks and so hopefully you guys will feel supported as you progress the fact is i think you guys all underappreciate you're getting less training than people had before but that's okay there are other ways of training now and you know the fact is orthopedic community understands that accepts that and we're here to support you guys as you transition into your consultant careers 
Pete, anything you'd like to say to finish up? I think we're done. John, thank you ever so much for coming down. Really, really grateful. Can we have a round of applause for John Keating? Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.